All right. Have you ever been in a place where people are just crammed together? I was talking to some of you guys about uh, homecoming you guys had recently. And when I was talking to some of you, um, you told me that it was packed and stinky and just full of people you didn't want to be around. I don't know why you didn't want to be around them. But have you ever been in a place where it's just uncomfortably full and smelly? Anybody? No? Some of you know? That's okay. So uh, I spent about 10, 10 years of my life, actually a little less than that, seven years of my life living uh, in the Czech Republic and in Germany. And public transportation is a lot like that. When you uh, are hopping on a tram or you're hopping on a, a bus and it's one of the busy times... It's kind of like every man for himself. You guys kind of file in, you're cramming in, you're, you got your arm hanging onto the bar, and you're just kind of like trying not to get too close to anybody. And in the summer, it stinks, and it's just, it's just not comfortable. And then they've got these little shelters outside, kind of next to every stop. And so when it starts to rain, everybody crams into this little like 10 foot by 3 foot shelter, just trying to stay dry. And it just gets really uncomfortable. And I don't want my leg touching that guy's leg who I have no idea who he is. Um, it's just uncomfortable. Well, our, our text for today starts kind of like that. Uh, we'll be in Mark chapter 2 and we get to this, this spot where Jesus is in this house and it is crammed full of people. When we read it in a moment, it'll actually say there's not even room at the door to just look in. It's so full of people. And I'm sure it was stinky. Now I'm reading into the text there. It doesn't say that in any verse, but it could not have been comfortable. But everybody was crammed into this little house because they wanted to hear this man named Jesus. They wanted to listen to what he was saying. And, and they'd already started to realize early in his ministry that cool things happen around this dude. I mean, his first miracle was turning water into wine. Can you imagine if there was somebody in our day who did this on a regular basis? People would be going nuts to hang out with him. Hey man, I'd love me some Cabernet. Can you just hook me up a little bit? They would be crazy. So let's go ahead and take, at this, take a look at Mark chapter 2. I want to read our text for today and then we'll, we're going to get to work. Today's going to be a little different. Um, I don't have like four main points. What I'm going to do is I want to try to unpack this account of scripture. I want you to try to put yourself in this text and feel what it's like to be in this text. And then we're going to try to pick ourselves out of the text. In other words, where are you? Who do you resemble from the text? So Mark chapter 2, starting in verse 1. And when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic, carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. 
Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in the spirit, or in his spirit, that they thus questioned within themselves, he said to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say to a paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed, and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. Pray with me. God, would you use Mark chapter 2 in our hearts and in our lives tonight to stir up new excitement for the gospel, to, to stir up ways that we need to grow and change and trust you more, to save souls, to grow Christians. Lord, would you do that tonight? That's in your name we pray. Amen. So you can see what I mean when you try to put yourself in this moment. It had to be uncomfortable in this house. It had to be uncomfortable to be sitting in there. There were scribes, so some of the religious elite. There was a crowd of people. So much so that his friends couldn't even get him inside to get help. This, I want to give you a little bit of context for this scripture. This is actually the first of five discourses or arguments that Jesus has with the religious leaders. If you read through the rest of chapter 2 and in the beginning of uh, chapter 3, there's five of these in a row. When Mark wrote, he wrote for the most part in a linear historical fashion, but uh, every once in a while he would clump thematic things together. And so this is five in a row of these, uh, of these accounts with him kind of arguing with the religious leaders of the day. It's really the beginning of him doing this for the rest of his life until he dies. You see, God had, had given Israel the Old Testament law, but many of these religious leaders had, uh, over time, had developed this new, what they called the oral law. So it kind of took the Old Testament law and ramped it up on steroids and added layers of other things that they had to do and other ways they had to live. And if you could abide by these things, you were considered to be the, the best of the best. And so you can only imagine when this man called Jesus from Nazareth came and started to turn their world upside down, they started to flip out. They started to freak out. Because everything they'd build their life upon, every way they had told people that they need to live because we live like this, was just being torn to shreds. And this is really, in the book of Mark, the first time we really get to see this. Everything they knew was about to change. See, Jesus was unlike anybody they'd ever dealt with. He was strong and confident, yet humble, but at the same time, he was not overly concerned about what they thought of him. It was one of the most crazy things. Everybody wanted to look good in the eyes of the Pharisees, as far as, especially the Jewish people. Everybody wanted to look good in their sight. And for the first time, this man came and said, I... I don't really care 
Ain't nobody got time for that kind of idea. He really didn't care. So what I want to do is I want to just try to talk about this account first. So often we read these accounts, and I've heard this before, but I want to try to, try to feel what's going on in this moment. So this house is packed, packed to the brim with scribes and other, most likely other Jews and just full of people that are listening to Jesus talk. It's quiet because they want to hear. He's not, he's not got these monster speakers that I have. It's quiet. And so they're, they're trying to listen to what he's talking about. Can you imagine being in that house and all of a sudden you start feeling like dirt and dust fall on your head? And you're trying to like look around. What is going on? And, and you look up and there's these guys literally pulling the roof apart. I mean, that's what they're doing. They're pulling tiles and whatever else they use. People, scholars debate on exactly what the roof was. But they're pulling this roof apart big enough so they can drop a mattress through it. They're not just like peeking their head down inside. Big enough so they can do that. So then these four friends come along. We don't really know much about them, but I think it's very clear to us that they loved this man dearly and desperately. And they thought if we could just get him near Jesus, he can be helped. So can you imagine being one of them and they get to this house, they'd heard all around town, this is where Jesus is. And then they get there and realize, I have no idea how we're going to get inside. I can't even see inside the door. I can't even, there's no back entrance that we can sneak in. It is packed. But we can surmise because they cared so much for this man. They climbed up onto the roof, pulled apart the roof, and lowered this man down in there. Now, if you were actually in the crowd in the house, what would you have been thinking? I tell you what I'd have been doing. I'd have been looking from the mattress to Jesus to see what in the world is he going to do with this. Is he going to just say, get out of here. I'm busy. Or is he going to do something crazy like we know he can? So they climbed up, they pulled apart, they let him down. And then I imagine just watching Jesus, just trying to see, okay, what's he going to do? How's he going to handle this? There's now a mattress probably hanging over somebody's head because it's so crammed inside. Did Jesus just say, get out of the way, I've got to finish my sermon? Did he simply say, I'll get to you later, pull him up, take him outside, I don't have time right now? No, we get to see the true character of the man we call our Savior. When he looked at the friends that had risked what they had risked to get him down there. He looks at the paralytic lying in bed and says, son, your sins are forgiven. It says he recognized their faith and his sins were forgiven. Now, if the place was not quiet before then, it surely was deadly quiet now. Why do you think, this is a real question I want to hear from you, why do you think it was such a big deal when Jesus said your sins are forgiven? Anybody? Go ahead. Right? 
Right. They said it in their statement later. Nobody had the authority to do that. In the Old Testament, when you would read uh, about dealing with people's sin, it was always a sacrifice. And at the very least, the priest would talk about your sins being put away. But it was never him that was forgiving. It was never him that was forgiving. It wasn't so much that he could forgive sins, but the scribes right away recognized, so the religious elite recognized right away, this man is claiming to be God. And that's a big deal. That's a big deal. That's why they started talking about blasphemy. That's why they really started freaking out in their minds and trying to figure out, what are we going to do with this man But what does it say in the text is the reason that Jesus forgave the paralytic's sin. What's the why? Well, yeah, his faith. Look at it in the text. I gotta find it. It's verse 5. And when Jesus saw their what there? All right, let's try that again. Their what there? Faith. He looked at him and said to him, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now, if the account ended there, we would still love this account of what Jesus did. But it doesn't. It doesn't. Uh, And this is actually where the the account gets a little tricky to read through. Uh, In verse 6, let's start reading there. Now, some of the scribes were sitting there, questioning in their hearts, Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And then immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, he said to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk? So when you think about those two two ideas... Your sins are forgiven or rise and walk. Let's just be real practical for a moment. What do you think is the easiest one to say? You think rise, take up your bed, and go home is the easiest. I can see why you would say that. If he says, rise, take up your bed, and go home, and he doesn't rise and take up his bed and go home, he's in trouble, right? All of a sudden they realize he's a fluke, right? But if he says, your sins are forgiven, how are they going to figure out whether that's happened or not? Do we have a sin test? Like, you know, you spit on this piece of paper, and if it turns, you know, green, you're good. If it's red, you're not. Like, there's no way for them to tell. So on, on a first reading, quite honestly, I think it makes sense to say, yeah, it's easier just to say, your sins are forgiven. But if we take a step back and think, Almost always, Jesus was communicating on a more spiritual level than we can recognize. It would have been much easier for him to just simply say, rise, take up your bed, and walk. Because he had the power to do that. And that wouldn't have flipped out all of the religious leaders. They'd have rejoiced that a man had got healed. They wouldn't have been concerned about who this guy was going to become. But no, he made a statement saying that he was God. That's what flipped them out. 
So for Jesus, it was actually taking the harder road to say, your sins are forgiven. But then he didn't stop there. He could have, once again, there's so many places he could have just stopped and been done. Let the, let the religious leaders just be angry and move forward. But he didn't stop there. He goes on in verse 10. But it says, but that you may know that the Son of Man, that was his own title for himself, has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And a man who had, we don't know how long he was a paralytic. It doesn't tell us from the beginning of his life. But a man who had no ability to walk. No ability to function and do things for himself. Picked up his bed and walked. Now I know you've not seen this in person. But if you claim to believe that the Bible is true, when we understand the scripture, this really happened. A man literally picked up his bed who could not walk and function and left the building rejoicing because his body had been healed and his soul had been forgiven. Verse 12 says, And he rose immediately, picked up his bed, and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, We've never seen anything like this. If I were to boil this text down into what's the most important element of this text, it's that Jesus is claiming to be God and he proved it. He's claiming to be God. And he proved it. One of the things I love about scripture though is there's usually this main idea, this main purpose of an account. But there's all these other things we can kind of pull out and apply to our lives. And so really that's where I want to go next. My main question for you tonight is if you had to pick a character from this account that most accurately represented you, who would it be? Who would it be? Would you be the scribes? Would you be one of the crowd? Would you be one of the friends? Or would you be the paralytic himself? If you were to accurately describe where you are in life right now, not where you want to be, not who you hope to be, but who you are right now, who would it be? The scribes could not come to terms with Jesus' claims of being the Messiah and of him being God and man. Even though the Old Testament scriptures spoke of the Messiah, he was not what they had expected. And he threatened so much of their cultural uh, habits and rules that they had actually come to idolize above scripture itself. It didn't matter how many blind people Jesus gave sight. It didn't matter how many lame he made walk. How many demons he cast out. They could not get past the claims that he was the son of God who came to save sinners. Couldn't get over that. 
It motivated them to anger. Maybe this is you. So caught up in doing good things, checking boxes, coming to church, going to young life, doing the things good Christians do, all the while missing Jesus. All the while looking to your own righteousness. Pastor Brad talked about this morning. I was sitting in my seat thinking, you're stealing my stuff, man. But maybe this is you. After these five discourses that I talked about, these five arguments, we can see what resulted in the hearts of the Pharisees and the, and the Sadducees and the scribes, the religious elite. If you look at verse 6 in chapter 3, it says, The Pharisees went out immediately and had held counsel with the Herodians against him on how to destroy him. They couldn't get past their own self-made righteousness, so they had to destroy the man who came to save everyone he could. He came to save the sinners who would repent. Their inability, just like Pastor Brad said this morning, to submit to Christ and humble themselves led them to plotting to kill the Savior we claim to love. Is this you? Maybe you aren't that hostile, but are you unwilling to submit your own life under the righteousness of Christ, not under your own good works? Your pride and your arrogance are hindering you from repenting of your sin and trusting Christ for salvation. And I just want to plead with you. Jesus is better. You're not that great. And you need a savior. Would you trust him for salvation? But maybe that doesn't resonate with you. If you're being honest and it doesn't resonate with you, maybe you're part of the crowd. The crowd was in awe and glorified God because they were so amazed by the healing that Jesus did. You can see that in verse 12. And one of the reasons I think when he talks about all that it's not including the religious uh, elite is because just a few sections later we can see they were moved towards killing Jesus. But maybe you're part of the crowd, and throughout Jesus' ministry, he drew crowds and crowds of people. I mean, how do you think he was able to feed the 5,000 or feed the 4,000 without them being there? He drew crowds and crowds of people. But by the end of his life, most of the crowd had deserted him. When things got hard, they bailed. I remember, you know, I should have I looked this up. I can't remember where this is in the New Testament, but it's in one of the other Gospels where there's some hard things that Jesus is saying and people start to flee him, uh, flee from him and leave him. And he looks at his disciples and they say, and he says, are you going to leave me too? And he says something to the effect of, where would we go? Who else has the words of life? But the crowds left. They didn't stick around They bailed. Does this describe you? Can you look back at at a time when you were so excited about Jesus, but when hardship came, you bailed? 
When you didn't get the things you thought God promised you, you bailed. Or when it was hard to keep a consistent quiet time or hard to build good relationships where people got to speak into your life and uncover sin, you just got uncomfortable and held everybody at arm's length, including Jesus. Friends, Jesus never promised that a Christian life would be easy, but he did guarantee that it would be worth it. He never promised that it would be easy, but he guaranteed that it would be worth it in the end. There are people in our church who have been through hell and back again in this life. I'm not one of them at this point in time. I don't know, 10 or 20 years from now, I might be singing a different tune. But right now, I've not experienced the kinds of suffering that other people have. But one of the closest things that's come for us in our life was last year when we had our, our miscarriage. When, you know, my wife and I got to rejoice that we, were, we, we found out that she was pregnant and we were excited that uh, we were going to have our fourth a uh, little baby, and so we started making plans and thinking about where, uh, what would we do for the room, and what would we do for these different things, and and then things didn't start to go very well. She started having some issues. We went to the doctor. We're at twelve weeks, and they said the baby had died at six weeks, and so she'd been carrying this baby, and her body had not realized that. A month and a half ago, it had died. And so we were at our home, and uh, my wife then had to deliver this, this very small baby. And, it, and we were crushed. Like, I remember when it set in for us, we were, uh, we were at our own house. I was supposed to go on the senior uh, trip that I take our seniors on. I had to bail and stay home with my wife. It was one of the best decisions I ever made. I wanted to go on the trip, but I needed to be with my wife. And... Shortly after we made that decision, she delivered this, this little baby in our house. And it was hard. We were trusting the Lord. But then uh, Caleb Combs, he, uh, he showed up unannounced at our house and knocked on the door, uh, handed us a meal, gave me a hug, and just shut the door and left. And so I brought it into my wife, and she started just bawling on my shoulder, just crying her eyes out. Now, if I was just part of the crowd, it would be bailing time for me. Many people get to that situation and say, God, you owe me this because of all the good that I've done in this world. I'm not a murderer. I haven't raped anybody. I'm a good person. I deserve whatever. But Jesus never made you any guarantees for those kinds of things. What he did tell you what he promises you is that you get him for eternity. That this life is a short blip. Second Corinthians 5 calls this life a temporary dwelling, a tent. Our body is a tent. We're just camping. So when hardship hits your life, are you someone who's just going to bail? Can you look back on a time when you thought you loved Jesus but now he's just kind of a distant memory 
that you talk about every once in a while, but shows up in very, area, very few areas of your life. Some of you need to come back to Jesus. Some of you have just, just gone astray, and you need to repent and come, come back to Jesus and walk in the light. But some of you, what you're remembering in your life was just an emotional experience, and you need to repent for the first time. I can't tell you where you are, which one is you, but I'd ask you to search your heart and figure out where am I. So is the crowd you? Are you in the crowd? Got excited at one point in time, but have bailed. Then there's the friends. These friends are actually, I think, my, some of my favorite people in this text, aside from Jesus. The love and the determination that they show for their friend in need is crazy to me. They had to have gotten together and decided, there's this man we've heard about, and if we can just get, whatever his name is, Paul, close to Jesus, he's got a shot. He's got a chance. And we don't know how much they were thinking about salvation or probably mostly just thinking about his body, a chance at real life. But they were not deterred simply because the house was full. They were not deterred by the little hardships that crept up in their way. They climbed that stinking roof. They pulled it apart. They dropped their friend down on Jesus' lap. Can you honestly say that you do everything you can for the people in your life to get them as close to Jesus as you can? These friends did whatever they could to get people close to Jesus. And look what it did. Probably more than they ever dreamed of. But for some of you, you, you walk into situations and all you see is a full house, right? All you see is, this could go bad if this conversation doesn't go well. They might not like me. This might ruin a friendship. I'd much rather have this than have what could happen. So you see that full house, and instead of climbing that roof, you just turn around and walk away. Is this, are you the friend who's getting everybody as close to Jesus as they can? Or do you see the full house and just turn around and walk away? What was the worst thing that could have happened to this paralyzed man if they drop him down in this house and Jesus doesn't want to heal him? You think he's getting any worse? No. The worst that could happen is he has to get yanked back up and carried back where he came from. What's the worst that you can have happen to you by getting people close to Jesus? They may reject you. The relationship could end. But it might not. They might get so close to Jesus that they see a man worth following and lay their life down and follow the king. Does this describe you? Getting people as close to Jesus as you can. Then there's the paralytic. This man is not the hero of the story. Jesus is the hero, but this man is the one who got rescued. 
All great stories have uh, usually somebody who's in need of help and needs to be rescued. Think about your favorite movie. I've quoted and showed you pieces of some of my favorites. But man, as a guy, what gets me most stoked about life and, and even about the gospel are these great films that show men who stood for what they believed in, usually because they cared about somebody else other than themselves. But the paralytic, he was just rescued. He was both dead in his sin and physically unable to do anything, but he recognized his need and through faith was rescued from both. He received salvation and he received the ability to walk again. I want you to see clearly that at the end of the day, every one of you is this man. Whether you feel like it or agree to it or not is a different story. But every one of you is this paralytic. Every one of you needs to be forgiven. Every one of you needs Christ and his redeeming work on the cross in your life. Some of you have recognized this and some of you have not. Some of you, when your friends come to you and say, let's go, get, let's go to Jesus, he can help. You lay in your bed, unable to move, and say, you know, I'm fine, thanks. Paralyzed, spiritually dead. What I want more than anything for each of you is honesty tonight. Jesus is the hero of this story. Everyone else is a minor character. As he shows us that he is God and that he is able to save sinners, I believe he wants you to take a hard look and think about where you stand with him. Jesus claimed to be God. He claimed the ability to save sinners. And he also says everyone needs a savior. So I have a few, few journaling questions for you. I don't know if we got them typed up, did we? No? Okay. Um, so I'll read them to you really quickly. And then I'm going to give you a few minutes to journal and we'll head to our groups. Number one, what are some of the ways, or what are some ways that you feel like you can relate to some of the people in this account? Nothing specific, nobody specific that I'm asking. I want you to be honest. What are some ways that you feel like you can relate to some of these people in this account? Who would you, this is number two, who would you like to be more like? And what's your plan for getting there? Or how do you plan on getting there? Who would you like to be more like and how do you plan on getting there? Three, how can we see ourselves more like the paralytic when it feels like we aren't that bad? This is actually just like Pastor Brad said this morning. It's how, how can we remind ourselves that that either was once us or is us when it just feels like we're not, we're not that bad. 
Number four, if you aren't quite sure where you stand with Christ, what are some of your biggest hurdles or questions? If you're not quite sure where you stand with Christ, or maybe you're sure that you're not a Christian, what are some of your biggest hurdles? Let's talk about it. Or just start being honest with yourself for the first time. 